Please open up your Bibles to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. Genesis 16. And I'm going to read um, just a portion of it. In verse 11, the angel of Yahweh said to her, Hagar, further, behold, you are with child. You will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael. You there? Probably you were even like thinking Isaiah 9 there, right? You were already going there. Um, because Yahweh has heard your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will dwell in the face of all of his brothers. But notice this here. Angel of Yahweh speaks to Hagar and makes remarkable promises to her that sound much like the promises that he even made to Abraham. Let's pray really quick. Dear God in heaven, thank you for the blessing of this moment and this time. We're thankful that we get to gather in this in this way and, and hear your word at this moment. And we pray that our eye, ears and eyes would be opened and ready to hear your truth and understand it and take great encouragement from who you are and who you are towards us, even in our weakness and in our failure and in our misery. We pray that you'd encourage us and, and make us a people that obey and honor you even more because of the good news that we hear from this passage. Amen. Well, some things are just doomed from the start, it would seem. Um, you could think of the 1992 U.S. men's Olympic basketball team in Barcelona. Uh, some of you, of course, have no idea what 1992 is, so I'll just refresh your memories that you don't have. Um, this was the first U.S. men's Olympic team to take on the nickname the Dream Team, and for good reasons... Uh, throughout the Olympics, the U.S. men's dream team beat every opponent by an average of 44 points. Um, they, even in the uh, final medal round, uh, they were playing Croatia, which I didn't even know they knew how to play basketball in Croatia, but they totally stomped their opponents. Uh, the Croatian team, you could say, was doomed from the start. And the uh, even before the Olympics began, everybody kind of felt like the rest of the world was doomed from the start. The U.S. Dream Team had the biggest names, not just in the U.S. for playing basketball, but they had the biggest names in the world as far as basketball goes. As a matter of fact, some people link the 92 Dream Team to the takeoff of basketball in places like China and things like that. That's right, Jeremy Lin is is born from the 92 Olympic Games. Some of you don't even know who Jeremy Lin is. That's fine, I don't care. But um, the Dream Team, the 92 Dream Team, had basketball players like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Charles Barkley. Maybe some of you don't even know who those are, but those were the biggest names in basketball in my childhood. And I would say a lot of those are still really big names, right? We're always looking for the next Michael Jordan. We always want to see an, another competition like the competition between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. That was the great days of basketball, if you ask your dad. 
but maybe not you, right? But once again, all to say, uh, Team Croatia was just doomed from the start, and everybody knew it. By halftime, the Dream Team was winning 56-28, to 28, and by the end, they had blown them out 117-85. to 85. It wasn't even close the whole entire time. The Dream Team destroyed Team Croatia. Now, this chapter, I would say, Genesis 16, is a lot like, a lot like the 92 Olympics, if you, if you want to think about it that way. Uh, it just seems doomed from the start, you know? You, you look at this chapter... And it doesn't take a doctorate in theology to get the strong sense that things are very wrong here in the tent of Abram. And, for example, let's just read verse 1. Notice, just from the very start, one verse into it, and this, this thing is off the rails. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian servant woman whose name was Hagar, already you're beginning to sense trouble, trouble here with Abram. Notice right out of the gate, we see that there are two women and one of them is barren. This is code language in Bible for trouble is about to happen. And notice one of them is named Hagar. She is Sarah's slave. And notice she is from Egypt, which means she's likely a pickup from Abram's sinful sojourning Back in Egypt, you remember that in, in Genesis chapter 12, right? Abram didn't believe God, didn't trust in God, so he went to Egypt to kind of take care of himself the old-fashioned way, the world's way. I'm going to go try to find a place that has the best food and stay there. And probably he picked up Hagar from his sojourning in Egypt. And also we could even say just the mention of Egypt probably would bring up bad or negative connotations for the people reading this, right? This is the children of Israel about to enter the promised land. They're on the plains of the Moab. Any reference to Egypt is a reminder of slavery. And here we have an Egyptian slave, and so this just feels wrong from the start. And the mess hasn't even begun yet. I mean, look at this mess. Let's keep reading. Verse 2, So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, Yahweh has shut my womb from bearing children. So Please go in to my servant woman. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant woman, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Could play a little game here. How many troubles do you see? I see trouble all over the place here, right? I'll just look at a few of these hints of trouble. Uh, first off, did you notice this? Did you notice this? Uh, Sarai is referred to twice as Abram's wife. It's almost as though, I mean, maybe this is kind of just joking a little bit with you, but it's almost as though the narrator is kind of trying to yell at Abram. He's talking so loud. Sarai, your wife, your wife. You get that? It's, it's, he's complete, he's, he's reminding us that this is Abram's wife. This is the person that Abram is supposed to be with. Once again, the Bible never commands polygamy. It never condones multiple wives. If anything, the Bible says you shouldn't do it by sheer example. And here is one of those examples. And then notice also, this is just the wrong foot from the start, uh, Sarai, you could say, 
starts out here on the lowest spiritual starting point possible. Her mind is completely twisted on what is going on here. She begins our story blaming God. God, Yahweh, is keeping me from having kids, so let's do this the world's way, right? You see that? Now, now you know how sin works, right? You never just wake up one morning and start blaming God for all of the problems in your life. It's probably that this is, is year after year after year of her thinking about her condition over and over and over again. And now she has finally voiced what she truly believes. Yahweh is against me. Yahweh must not like me. Yahweh has made great promises to you, but I don't think that those things apply to me. Yahweh is keeping me from having kids. It's Yahweh's fault, in other words, or it's my fault. Notice, she, so she starts out on a low, a low point spiritually. That's another hint of trouble. But the biggest hint here, and maybe you can see it, you can feel it, right? If you've read Genesis at all in your life, you should be able to hear this, is the, the kind of tone of all of this. And, and, and the words that the, the narrator, Moses, is using in writing this account, this sounds familiar, and we don't like what we're reminded of when we read these verses. I mean, this is cut and paste. The dialogue is cut and paste from another story that we're not so fond of. Anybody? Anybody see it? Anybody see it besides Isaac? Anybody see it besides Isaac? Anybody? Anybody? Did you, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear what this sounds like? Let me read it again. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Do you hear it? And uh, Go on, uh, verse 3. After 10 years, uh, blah, 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 Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar. Hear it? You hear it? Let's keep going, keep going. Uh, Verse 3 again. Her servant woman and, you hear it? Gave her to her husband. Did you hear it? Come on, Macy, you heard it that time, right? What what are we talking about here? Nope. What? (laughs) It's cut and paste from Genesis 3, right? It is Moses saying, this is a lot like that. You got that? This is Moses giving you huge hints. Something is very wrong here in the camp of Abram. Here we have Sarai acting a lot like Eve, who is, you know, that kind of wife that, you know, I'm really the neck that's turning the head in this operation. I'm really the wife that gets things done. This isn't working, Abram. Your way is not working. God's way is not working. So we're going to do it the world's way. We're going to make things happen, and I'm going to make it happen. This is just like Eve kind of usurping, you could say, the role of her husband. And Abram is culpable as well because Abram is the softy who just basically says, yes, dear, whatever you want, whatever makes you happy. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take the fruit. Give it to me. (laughs) Good, good, good. Just as long as you're happy, I'm happy. Happy wife, happy life, right? I don't care about God or anything like this. No promises. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. We see two pathetic people, I would say. This is, this is off from the start. But the most uncomfortable part to me in reading these verses is that these are supposed to be covenant people. Abram, we were just told in Genesis 15, is a man who is justified by faith. 
He is righteous. He is in a right relationship with God. These are God's people doing this. That is the most uncomfortable part to me. And this is a reminder to us that sometimes just because you're God's people does not mean you will not slog your way through the muck and the difficulties of this world. And that doesn't mean that just because you're God's people does not mean that you will often look more like the world than God's people. And this doesn't mean that just because you have saint on your name does not mean you can also not commit the worst kinds of sins. God's God's people are sometimes horrible failures. And that's what that shows me. And sometimes the apple, pun intended, doesn't fall very far from the tree. Sometimes you're a lot more like Eve than you want to be. Sometimes you're a lot more like Adam than you care to resemble. And that's because you are in a fallen world. Now, I suppose it's important to uh, remember. Next slide, please. Since you got up. There you go. There's the uh, US 92 boy uh, men's uh, basketball team. I really thought this was a joke, by the way. Uh, this guy is actually a basketball player. It's, it's, it's not a high schooler. Uh, but anyway, uh, next slide, next slide. See, they had all these cool things. All right, there you go. Next slide. Bam. All right, stop. Okay, it's uh, important perhaps to remember... It's important perhaps to remember and recognize the significance of barrenness, not being able to have children in the ancient mindset. I would say that barrenness in that world was an even more bitter pill to swallow than it would be in our world. And I know from talking to women that struggle with infertility that it is very difficult to not be able to bear children in our world. But in that world, it was an even more difficult pill to swallow It could be the highest shame a wife could bear. In some Jewish circles, it was a cause for divorce. You don't give me children, so I'm going to divorce you. And typical, what people did in these days, because having children was so important that they would do these quasi-adoption schemes, but in order to have the father really be the father of the heir that was being born here, what they would do would be incredibly painful for a woman to have to go through. For, for example, in that day and age, a barren woman, if she was married to a wealthy man in particular, would sometimes get a slave to bear a child for her through her husband, and then after the child was born and weaned, they would sell off the slave woman. So it was just all around, all around difficulty, and this is shameful even for the woman who is barren. And you can sense the bitterness of the life in this, this day, can't you? Just by Sarai's comment, right? Yahweh has kept from me. He's kept me from something. And this is very painful for Sarai. So this is a, just a difficult stigma on a woman, a frustration to the whole family, and it would cause tensions all over the place, and sin is happening all over. So here we have it, God's people in a world like ours, often do not look much different than the world that we are in. And as we will see in the rest of this chapter, when God's people respond to their troubles like the world, when God's people choose to act like the world in response to the difficulties that they face, that they will also inherit the same kinds of problems that the world will inherit as well. So we are in the same world, and it's very tempting to respond the way the world responds to our trouble, to think the way the world thinks to our trouble. But just know, and we'll see this in our chapter, when you do that, you will also inherit the same kinds of trouble that the world will inherit 
as well. Or you could say it like this. Sin always carries you in a downhill momentum. It will carry you downhill, and the momentum will just increase the sin and the problems in your life. That is how sin works. Sin always carries you downhill with sinful momentum. But let's continue on. We are in verse 4. Hagar has conceived, and notice this, then she saw that she had conceived. So her mistress became contemptible in her sight. You can kind of understand what's going on here. Contemptible means to think lightly of someone, to treat them as trivial, to treat them as less than significant uh, in your eyes. It's not totally clear how Hagar did this, but I'm sure all of you can use your, you know, inspired imagination and kind of figure out ways that she could do this? Was it maybe a way in which she looked at Sarai in the morning? Was it a way in which she spoke to Sarai? Was it the way in which she hummed loudly and happily to herself while rubbing her belly while she walked by Sarah's tent? We don't know, but whatever happened, we know that she let Sarai know that she was the winner and that Sarai was the loser. Very subtle and maybe not so subtle forms, just little ways of saying to Sarah, so how long again have you been trying to please Abraham? I I can't remember. How many years was that? 10, 15, 20? I didn't have any problem. Oh, it's very easy to treat someone as contemptible in your sight. And I noticed this, Sarai clearly felt it, right? She, she I, I kind of find this ironic, like in the world that we live in, right, communication is, we're always having trouble with communication, but for some reason, we never struggle to communicate sinful contempt. I don't know if any of you have ever had problems understanding when someone despises you. You usually pick up on it pretty well. It's pretty easy to communicate contempt for someone else. And Sarai picked it up pretty exactly. As a matter of fact, she uses the exact same words that the narrator uses to describe what is happening here. Verse 5 says this, And Sarai said to Abram, May the violence done to me be upon you. I gave my servant woman into your embrace, but she saw that she had conceived, so I became, notice the word, contemptible in her sight. May Yahweh judge between you and me. Oh, let's just just stop here for a second. No, notice that she perfectly understood what Hagar was trying to do, but let's just stop here for a second and just sit on this for a moment. In Sarai's worldly response, sinful response to God's promises, she created more problems. And notice also, Abram's weakness also made him follow her and add to the problems that we see here. And then we also see Hagar's uh, heart of pride and also adds to the pain here. Notice we just see building and building and building more and more problems. What should these two people do? What should Sarai and Hagar do? Are they going to repent? Are they going to say, hey, maybe we should start 
looking to God for answers or hoping in God or trusting in God. No, all they do is continue to add more sin. And that's what we see here. Sarai, in her blindness, notice she is blind in this verse to her own sin, her own fault. She has convinced herself in her sin that the blame for all of her trouble lies elsewhere. We already saw it, right? She's already convinced herself that the blame lies with Yahweh. And now she's starting to blame Hagar. And now she's starting to blame even Abram, her own husband. She is, in her sinful blindness to herself, convinced that everybody else is to blame for her trouble and not her. Now, now what is she saying here to Abram in verse 5? Maybe, maybe perhaps what she's trying to say here is, listen, I know I'm barren, but could you be a little bit less happy about Hagar having your child. Just be a little bit more sensitive to me. Maybe that's what she's saying, because we definitely know what she's saying. She's basically saying, you are at fault, you are in sin, and God is going to get you for this. Notice what she says in the end of verse 5, may Yahweh judge between you and me. She is upset with Abram now, and she's basically saying, you have only made this situation worse by embracing Hagar the way you have. Now, Abram, what does he do? In in fear of his wife and continued desire to please her, he only adds more sin to the problem as well. Verse 6 says this, And Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant woman is in your hand. Do to her what is good in your sight. What's really going on here? Basically, once again, Abram's saying, whatever you want, dear. Just be, as long as you're happy, I'm happy. You just do whatever you want that makes you feel better, and that will make me feel better. Basically, what he's saying is, hey, Hagar is your servant. Treat her like a servant. Get her in line. Now, once again, Abraham is refusing to take leadership and resolve conflict. He is saying, you do my dirty work for me. Once again, Abram is not truly responding in a right way. Also, by the way, this could mean he's basically declaring that Hagar is no longer a wife, but now she's a slave again. You could say it that way. Either way, whatever Abram is doing here, he is not responding in a, in a, in a way that has a vision of faith in God, but only a way that's trying to please the people in his life. Once again, that response is likely going to be sinful, as you see. And once again, all to say, I hope you're getting this point, right? God's people are most disappointing at times. They are not owning their own sin. We can see it clearly, but they don't want to do it. There's no, hey, let's get back to raising our hand to God, the possessor of heaven and earth, and see what he can do about this. Remember that incredible faith that Abraham showed in Genesis 14, where he's refusing the riches of Sodom and all of the the bounty from the battle and saying, I have raised my hand to the possessor of heaven and earth. No, there's none of that here. It's simply, let's just try to clean up this mess so we can be happy. And it it once again reminds you that once you start sinning, it is hard to pull up, right? There's a lot of momentum to sin. And responses of sin usually follow from responses of sin. And the more you sin, the more likely you are to sin again and again and again until you face your sin and confess your sin and repent of your sin. You will just keep adding to the problems around you. And, And also, we could say, trying to fix things the world's way just leads to more things that need to be fixed. 
That is how life is. And God's people are very disappointing when they follow the world's pattern and how they solve conflict and other things like this. But, but wait, but wait, but wait. There's more. There's even more problems that we see, even more sinning, even more trouble that comes from Sarai trying to once again do things her way instead of looking to God like her husband should be leading her to do. Verse 6 says this, um, Sarai afflicted her. Sarah said, okay, you want me to treat Hagar like a slave? I will afflict her. And this word means to bring someone into the state of wretchedness, to humiliate them, to make them feel like they are bent over. And basically, this is the very word that's used for, you know, Egypt enslaving enslaving Israel, we'll see in Exodus, and this is, this is a term that usually refers to a master humbling, trying to humble their slave and get them into line. And we totally understand what Sarai is up to, right? She's saying, I am going to make Hagar respect me. I am going to change her. How dare she treat me this way? I'll show her who she really is, and I'm going to stomp on her until she humbles herself before me. This is the way the world fixes problems, right? I am going to pummel you until you surrender. That's how the world solves their problems. And, and once again, what's the result? Just like in the Garden of Eden, we see where sinful thoughts about ourselves and about our God ultimately lead us, don't they? they? They lead us to sinning against God and enmity, making an enemy out of everyone in your life. Have you ever noticed this about your sin? When you allow sinful thoughts into your head, they always bring forth sinful actions and enmity between you and everybody around you. You become an island to yourself. You are an alien in your own house. That is what your sin, it starts against God, always results in your life. Once again, I love Genesis. I love the Old Testament because it never just tells us about things that happened thousands of years ago, does it? It tells us about what is happening today. This is what happens, not about what happened and notice, once again, what is Sarai's response to this? The end of verse 6, she fled from her presence. Of course, it's pretty obvious where she's going. Uh, we're, we're told that she goes in the way of Shur, and she finds herself to a spring by this place, and the location of Shur is probably on the way back to Egypt. She is heading home. She is running. She is pregnant, and she is alone. And what, are, what is our response to all of this? Is our response to this, well, good riddance. Now Sarai and Abram can get back to the happy old life, right? No, that's not how sin ever leaves you. It never is just solved when people leave, right? Sarai is still as barren as she was before, and even more bitter about it. Abram is more despondent and weak and helpless than he was before. And Hagar is ten days into a journey, all alone, by herself, pregnant, weak, and exhausted, and humiliated. All alone. Nobody is happy. Once again, sin never solves anything. It only compounds problems. There are never any real winners when there are sinners. Sin just makes everybody a loser, you could say. 
Now, I would say we, we all understand this way too well. This is, I would say, where we sometimes find ourselves when we are in sin and duped into the world's way of thinking, isn't it? We find ourselves with no end of problems and nobody is happy. That is the way the real world works. And, and I would say it is here, it is here in this story that we should find ourselves and say, yes, this is where I often feel. And this is also where I often feel like God is the furthest from seeing me, hearing me, or caring about me. Why should I repent when I am so humiliated by my own sinful responses and the sinful responses of other people? God doesn't want to even look at me, right? That's how we feel when we are duped by the world's way of thinking. And that is where we find ourselves, and here is where the glories of our God appear to us. And this is really what I want to talk to you. All, all of that was just introduction to get to this. Let's read here in verse 7. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's servant woman, where have you come from? And where are you going? Notice here the Lord is asking questions about where she is. Sounds like Genesis 3. And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, Return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your seed so that they will be too many to be counted. Sounds a lot like promises to Abram. And then verse 11, And the angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will dwell in the face of all of his brothers. Then she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called. Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Just a few thoughts here. That, that name, Beer Lahai Roy. Uh, is literally translated, the well of the living one who sees me. Uh, Hagar here becomes the inheritor of promises, just like Abram is as well. And notice she is promised a son, and from this son will come a nation, a powerful nation. Yes, he has some he has some problems. He likes to fight with everyone, it seems. He's a wild donkey of a man. But he will become multiplied. His seed will be too many to be counted. And if you know your history, you know that the Ishmaelites really are the, um, the ancestors to the current Arab nations that we have ourselves in the Middle East. And so we see that totally on display, right? God has blessed this random slave woman, Hagar, with a son. 
And also, just to point it out here, verse 7 refers to the angel of Yahweh. This is a likely reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus operating in the world and pursuing his will and his work before the manger. It is an amazing, it is an amazing what we would say, theophany, so to speak, a, a an early revelation of Christ. And, and we say this because all the places where the angel of Yahweh is, is referenced in the Bible, if you tally them all up, you see they say incredible things. Uh, this angel of Yahweh has the deity of Yahweh. He shares the attributes of Yahweh. He speaks as if he is speaking as Yahweh, right? He is equated with Yahweh, and at the same time, he is distinct from God in the Godhead. A triune God, perhaps, right? He forgives sins as well, like Yahweh, and most incredibly, the angel of Yahweh receives worship. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. And notice, I love this, right? It's so tender. He is pursuing after this random woman who has now found herself by a well in the middle of nowhere who is afflicted and alone And the angel of Yahweh has found her. Do you see the tenderness in that even language that we see there? It reminds me a lot of John 4, if you ask me. Jesus seems to always persist and pursue strange women by the well that he has set his love on. Now, what do we take away from all of this? I just want to express to you how amazing our God is. How about this God of ours? How about this God of ours? So let's just go right here. A first point, let's talk about how about the keen awareness of our God that we see here, the keen awareness of our God. We can't miss the way in which his ears and eyes are open to the lost and those who are afflicted. He is a God characterized as someone who hears the cries of those people that are down that those people that are troubled, that those people are hurt. The word keen, of course, has, a, has this idea of extreme alertness towards. And this is how I read this as well. The whole chapter, the meaning of the chapter, I would say, is kind of tied up in all of these names that are given for God and the names that God gives to people. The name Ishmael, for example, means God hears. Hagar uh, names God herself, and she's the only person in the Bible to ever actually name God herself. She names God as the seeing God. You are a God who sees and hears the name of the location. This is the well of the living God who sees me. This is a God who sees and hears and has keen awareness for me. And, And don't let this point pass you by. Magnify this point in your mind, because who is Hagar in this moment when God is seeing her. She is surrounded by a lot of problems that, let's admit it, are self-inflicted, and God cares about her suffering that has been self-inflicted. Yes, Abram and Sarai are to blame for her suffering, but she has also added to the problems as well. But this is the one that Yahweh God sees and hears. Our God has keen awareness for people under affliction. God does not leave people to suffer their own fate. He he does not leave people in affliction and just let them suffer the consequences for their actions. God will hear and see 
us even in our sin-based affliction. Now, the question is, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to go to God with that knowledge, or are you not going to go? But let it be known to you that God is available to the sinner who is feeling the bite of their foolishness. How about the keen awareness of our God? What about, secondly, how about the determined love of our God? Don't let it escape your notice here either that Sarai is an Egyptian slave. She is not the wife of promise. She is not Abram's wife. Yet she will be the mother of a multitude. She is important to God because for some reason God has set his love on her and on individuals that will come from her line that he has purposed to love from eternity past And this is, of course, once again, a reminder that we see all throughout the Old Testament, right? God is not just a God who has chosen one little nation to love. No, God has chosen to bless Abram and Israel so that he can be a blessing to the world. God has international schemes of love. And this is a determined love. This is a love that's not waiting for the sinner to get it right before God pursues the sinner this is very much like the god we see in the new testament our god this is our god who pursues sinners in determined love even in our affliction and notice this just to magnify it a little bit more uh, god's grace is made known here to sinners through their sinful actions Abram is the pinnacle of weakness in this chapter, and yet this leads God to magnify his love and his grace. He is suddenly making promises and provisions to a woman caught in sin. Then it is a consequence of sin. But do you understand here? Sometimes God can reveal greater love, greater grace, even in sinful situations. And that is the determined love of our God. Our sin doesn't undo God's love. It can't be undone by our mistakes. God's love is only magnified in our love. Now, caveat here. Does that mean you should sin that grace may abound? No. God's love is to call you to repentance, as our next point will, will illustrate. How about the humbling necessaries of our God? Couldn't think of a better word. So here you go. I'll try to explain it to you. The humbling necessaries of our God. What is required of Hagar to obtain the blessings of God, the favor of God? What is required of Hagar to recognize recognize the, the blessings of being with God? and to enjoy his determined love. There is a requirement necessary. She must return to Sarai and humble herself to Sarai. This is exactly how it is with God's people. God is, God is full of affection and kindness and determined love towards you in your sin, but you must repent and return to him. And notice, the, the idea here is that uh, Sarah, uh, the blessings of God are, are contingent upon your relationship with Abram. God has made, God has made Abram the, the instrument through which he's going to bless the world. And if you want to receive God's blessing, you need to humble yourself and be with Abram. And this is very similar in my mind to the way God 
works in our world today. Listen, if you want to be my people, and if you want me to be your God, you must humble yourself, repent of your sins, and follow Christ. The Christian life is is nothing else than just humbling yourself and following Christ and believing in his work and not your own. You can, though, possess this affection, keen God, and this determined love God through this uh, humbling posture. I would say uh, this chapter is not about just saying, hey, look how sinful we can be. God's fine with it. That's not what this chapter is about. This chapter is about look at all of the sin that you can commit and God will still call you back to himself. God will still call you to a life of humility and pursuing him. But one more thing, how about how about the faith provisions provisions of our God? Or you could write it this way, this is kind of the the idea I was tinkering with in my head. How about the faith fuel that our God provides? How about the 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 amount of work that God goes here to give his people great assurance of his character and his nature. And by extension, you. How about a God who goes so far to show you the kind of God that he is? I'd argue that this chapter is for faith that endures and continues, even in weakness. This chapter is actually not ultimately for Hagar as much as it is for Abram, that Abram will grow in his faith. Let me, let me show you kind of what I mean. God's appearing and message to Hagar is really an appearing and message to Abram himself, and the purpose is to provide Abram with faith fuel that he will live on for the years to come as he continues to wait for God's promises to come to fruition. Watch. Verse 15, we didn't read this yet. So Hagar bore Abram a son. She returned. She humbled herself to uh, Abram and to Sarai. She returned and bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Now Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. What, What does that have to do with faith fuel? Well, let's think about this. Let's think about this. Yahweh told Hagar, I see you and I hear you. I hear your affliction and I am willing to welcome you as one of my people if you humble yourself and you return to Abram. And I'll, and I'll kind of give you a hint as to the future. I will give you a son and you will call his name Ishmael, and and therefore, whenever you look at this son, you will always remember that I am a God who sees, and I am a God who hears. But then what does Hagar do? She goes back to Abram, and Abram just happens to name the son Ishmael. No. Here's what I think happened, right? Uh, Hagar goes back, and she tells Abram what she has experienced. And notice, Abram receives this as a message from the Lord. Because he calls the son, my God hears, my God sees. I mean, you don't have to connect the dots too much to figure that out, right? Abram 
has received from Yahweh an assurance, even in your trouble, even in your failure, even in your weakness, I am a God who sees and hears, and I am a God who is determined to love. And, and here, here is how it connects, right? Because Abram can always think in his mind, if my God sees and hears and cares about, uh, about Hagar, an Egyptian nobody, how much more will my God see and hear and care about me, the person who has received his promises and his inheritance, right? When Abram looks to his son and says, Ishmael, Abram says, my God sees and hears me. I can live on that. Even if God says nothing for the next 13 years, I will continue to follow him because my God sees my affliction. God hears my trouble. God is in control and God is determined to love me and be committed to his blessings to me. And and notice the magnitude of this, right? The, the The lesson is, God is all of this, how much more to me, a sinner, right? Because God appears to Hagar the sinner, and God appears to Hagar the sinner who is in a situation full of sinners, and yet God is saying, I am willing to hear your affliction, and I am willing to receive you as my people, and I am determined to bless you all the same as you humble yourself and return to me. Right? Look at, look at uh, ch- chapter 17, verse 1, right? Uh, now it happened that when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to him. Do you realize that's 13 or yeah, 13 years later? Uh, Abram lives for 13 years trusting in the God who sees and hears. This is faith fuel, ladies and gentlemen. This is faith provision. This is a God saying, I want to strengthen your faith so that you will follow me. Was Abram perfect? No. Was Abram understanding God's promises right? No. God, uh, Abram probably thought that the line of promise was going to go through Ishmael, but God still, uh, God still gave Abram faith fuel to follow him. You might not be perfect in your life. You might not have everything figured out in your life, but you can still trust in a God who sees and hears and is determined to love you as you humble yourself under him, and you will be fine. You will follow him imperfectly, but you will still be holding up your hand to the possessor of heaven and earth, and that is an incredibly assuring thought. Even in your weakness, even in your sin, God is still there. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for um, this um, message of your wonder and your grace, your condescension to sinners like us, to be believed on by sinners like us, and we pray that we would, little by little, more, more and more, trust you and obey you rightly and not and not go about our time in this world like the world would go about it but go about our time in this world as those who have raised their hand to the possessor of heaven and earth who not only sees hears but also is determined to love us and guide us and direct us pray that we would be better for knowing you strengthened through knowing you Amen.